even though Zechariah said that the Messiah would come riding on the back of a colt, an untrained colt. But they still missed it. They missed a lot in, Isaiah, in Zechariah, to tell you the truth. And this is one of the passages they missed. And so, first thing we say is awake, and there would be a rejoicing that it was time finally for God to do something. And then it's O sword, and the sword would speak of justice. The sword of justice. And in Romans 13, 4, Paul speaks about this when he's addressing the role of government in our society. He says, for he is a minister of God to those for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a ministry of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And we know from Revelation that when the Lord comes, he'll come with a flaming sword because he's going to do justice. And so this sword would speak of justice. But then the verse takes a turn. Because it's not justice against the enemies of the Jews. Notice what it says. It says, against, against my shepherd. Who is this shepherd? Obviously not their enemies. In Ezekiel 34 and 23, it says this. I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Now, David was long in the grave when that was written. Because it wasn't talking about David, it was talking about David's greater son, the coming Messiah, that the coming Messiah would be the shepherd. And so what's the proclamation? Who is the sword going to be raised against? The Lord himself. In Matthew 26, 31, the Lord would confirm this and say, it was raised against me. And it says this, And saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. He was that shepherd. He was that shepherd. And so we learn two things right away in this verse. The sword of justice will awaken, and we learn who the sword of justice will awaken against. God will finally act, but not as the Jews expected. He will act with a sword of justice against his own shepherd. One of the things then that this clearly points out and that the scriptures clearly teach is that God was not surprised at what happened at Calvary. Peter on the great day of Pentecost would tell us that. He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him by wicked hands, have crucified him, crucified and slain. You have God doing his purpose and his will and man evilly doing their purpose and their will. Later in Acts, it says, For those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. On the road to Emmaus, the Lord said, should he not first suffer and then enter into his glory? They missed the whole suffering part of it. This verse so clearly points that out, that there was going to be suffering because the sword of justice was going to be applied 
to the shepherd. Now notice if you would, over in Zechariah 11, 4, it says this. Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the, shout, of, of the slaughter. So earlier in this passage in Zechariah, he had talked about a shepherd feeding the flock of the slaughter. They're the Lord's sheep. And he speaks of Israel often as their fold, as a fold of sheep. And so he's referring to the shepherd of Israel. David referred to him in the 23rd Psalm as my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. But here, it's the Lord himself saying this, if you would. So there's three, there's four times that we see the term my, five times that we see the term my used in the Old Testament. My son, in Psalms 2 and verse 7. And in fact, the very next one is also in Psalms 2 and verse 6, my king. So God the Father calls him my son. He calls him my king. In Isaiah, he calls him my servant. In Isaiah 42, 1. Here, in this verse, he calls him my shepherd, and he calls him my fellow. So you have it five times, two in the second chapter of Psalms, one in Isaiah 42, and then twice in this verse. And my is used as a term of endearment, as a term of intimacy, as a term of closeness, as a term of someone who has been appointed to a position. Isaiah 40 and 11 says this, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead them which are with young. My shepherd. So the awakened sword of justice is against his own shepherd. The ones who are to be caring for the flock. And so we're pointed, it's brought to our attention that here's the one. Here's the one. What did the Lord say about himself? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And here we have that pictured. The sword of justice is raised, but it's not raised against the enemies of God. Thankfully, because the Bible tells us we were God's enemies. It's raised against his own son as a shepherd. That the justice that we so rightly deserved is going to be meted out to God's own shepherd. But it's just not that he's his own shepherd. Because it's going to go on to tell us more and describe even more who this shepherd is, just so we don't miss it. The great news is this good shepherd who was rejected of his people fulfilled his mission of dying in their place. He came to gather his sheep. He longed to gather his sheep, and yet they rejected him as their shepherd. 
they would not receive him as the only way into the sheepfold. He told many illustrations about being a shepherd, and the, and the one that would most be famous to us is Luke 15, where he talks about the 90 and 9. And as a shepherd, how far he would go to recover one of his lost sheep. He demonstrated his heart that it was a heart of a shepherd, and yet they rejected him and rejected everything that he stood for. The good news is, as we go on to read, that the good shepherd won't fail his people. He will be their shepherd. And if you go back and read the 12th and the 13th chapter, they will recognize him. And we're going to get to that. So the next designation in the verse is that against my shepherd, and to make sure we understand who this is, he says against the man. Against the man. Most of the Jews accepted that the Messiah was going to be a man. They had no problem with that concept. We know, looking back on prophecy, that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews would tell us that he came not with the nature of angels, but he took on himself the seed of Abraham. Because it was important that if he was going to receive the justice that a man deserved, that he be a man. And so it says that he took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. Apart from sin, there was no sin found in him. Because if he had had any sin, he wouldn't have been a proper substitute for us. But he was a man. And yet the next thing would tell us clearly and against the man that is my fellow. Now this isn't a word used a lot. It's rather rare. But the idea is, is it's my companion, my associate, my friend, equal with myself. There's a close and a nearness of kin there. There's a relationship there that goes beyond a man who is a fellow of God. When the Lord Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, he said that you would see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. And they rent their clothes and said, crucify him, crucify him. A man sitting in the presence of God? They, it, they just couldn't grasp the concept of man and God coexisting. And yet here it is in Zechariah. It's as clear a declaration of the manhood and the deity of Christ as there possibly could be. And yet there were blinders on their eyes and they did not see it. I think the warning to us is as we read the scriptures to not come in with a lot of preconceived ideas and miss what the scripture's saying. And we have our own ideas and we totally miss what it has to say about the scripture. Because the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. And Paul would tell us, great is the mystery that Christ was manifest in the flesh. I would just give you this warning. 
there are certain things that I know my finite mind can't grasp. And I will tell you, it scares me when I hear people trying to explain an infinite God with a finite mind. About the time that you can make an infinite God reasonable and logical to your finite mind, you've limited God. And you've put him in a box that your mind can understand. But my God is so much greater than that. I stand in awe of my God. Some of us will be going to Yosemite, and I will tell you, if you can stand there, see Ricky's pictures, or just stand there and look at it, if you are not awestruck by the creation of our God, but when we get to heaven, we won't praise him for his creation. We will praise him for his grace and love in redeeming us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the work at the cross is a greater work than the creation. I don't understand it. I am amazed that the more I know about DNA, and I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, and when people start talking about DNA, it doesn't take them long and they lose me. But to think that all the intricacies of DNA, where you are who you are because one switch and how many, possibly millions, was thrown to the left instead of to the right, that all that somehow just happened, boggles my mind. Simply boggles my mind that someone would believe, have more faith that everything just happened than the fact that there's a creator that should be awed, reverenced, and served. And yet I know people because they start with the premise there is no God, and they have to stay with that premise and somehow explain away all the intricacies of our design and who we are. So be careful with that. So Christ was able to say, I and the Father are one, and every time he told them that this verse spoke of him and was true of him, they picked up stones. They would not believe that he could possibly be a fellow of God's. And every time he mentioned it, they, they were abhorred by the fact because their minds just could not conceive it. Their prophet told them that it was true. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, you'll see that there's a blindness, Paul tells us, that they cannot see. And they can't see it. Turn, turn over there. Let's look, just look at that, what Paul explains it to us in 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 3. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And I hope that I'm using great plainness of speech tonight. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. 
Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as a spirit of the Lord. Zechariah, as we're going to see in the next couple of verses, he writes of that veil being taken away. There is coming a day where that veil will be taken away, and we will get to that. So we see his humanity, and we see his deity. And then next, we should not overlook who the speaker is. The speaker, it says, that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, if you have not studied the names of God, I would encourage you to study the names of God. Please spend time studying the names of God. If you have not studied the names of God, spend time studying the names of God. Because it's important that you do so. The Lord of hosts is what we would also probably translate Almighty God. It speaks of his power, his omnipotence, his, his ability to do whatever he says he's going to do. The Lord of hosts speaks of the host of armies that he commands. Now, the amazing thing is we have a God who pre-writes history. And then, because of his abilities... As an omnipotent God, he makes those histories that come true exactly as he has pre-written them. Now, I will tell you a side note here. Please do not be confused about the literacy of prophecy. There's many people who look into the New Testament, and the book of Revelations particularly, in the Matthew and the Lord's prophecies in Matthew and Luke, and they see those as having a spiritual fulfillment. I want to tell you this. I want you to think about this carefully. Can you name one prophecy about the sufferings of Christ that had a spiritual fulfillment? Tell me one prophecy up to the point of Christ being born, and the prophecies are so numerous that I've heard for one of them to be true is like spreading the state of Texas an inch deep in quarters, and then reaching in and finding the right quarter. There's that many prophecies. And the prediction of even one of them coming true is like that, and they all came true. Every single one of them was a literal prophecy. Now tell me how many prophecies here in Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelations, and we could go on and name other prophetic books are not going to be literally fulfilled. If 100% of the prophecies before the crucifixion were literally fulfilled, I will tell you that if you're going to try to tell me that there's a percentage of the prophecies after the crucifixion that are not going to be literal in their fulfillment, that you and I will probably have a problem. Because when God prophesies, he literally does what he says he's going to do. And we don't have to make it spiritual to make it work. And if you read the study of the book of Revelation, study it as a literal book. Yes, there's use of words. There's drawing of pictures as in anything that the Lord does to help us understand it. But if you can take it literally, 
take it literally. If they had taken this passage literally, they might have learned something. So just to encourage you, when you study prophecy, especially future to this point, please take it literally. And so we say, and, and so it's the Lord of hosts, the one who can make it happen, the one who makes it come true, the one who makes everything happen. And then notice what he says again, smite the shepherd, smite the shepherd. No doubt, we sometimes sing a song, it's in the red book, see who bears the awful load, mark the sacrifice appointed, it's the shepherd the one who with open arms is inviting people to come. He's the one who bears the sword of justice on our behalf. Sometimes we call that substitution. One of the verses I love to quote is, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 3 clearly lays it out. We've all sinned. We all deserve justice. And yet God has set forth his son to be a propitiation. It's the same word that's translated mercy seat in the Septuagint. To be a propitiation for us, to meet the sat and satisfy the justice the law demands. So that God might be just, because we have a just God. He's consistent with his character that he must be a just God. And I love it the way the verse says, and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. It's when we say and understand and believe that when Jesus died at the cross, he took the stroke of justice we so rightly deserved. And by faith, we become, as we've sung a number of songs, under the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're sheltered in his blood. His death becomes our death. And I believe the New Testament clearly teaches that. And then it says, and the sheep shall be scattered. And the idea is the sheep shall be scattered. It's, it's judgment and justice against Israel for rejecting their Savior. We know in AD 70 that took place. They were scattered. We know that in 1948, the United Nations gave Israel a land again. And in that land, they are beginning to gather. They're only beginning. There's still more Jews in the United States than there are in Israel. But God's promise is from the four corners, he will gather Israel into Israel. And so that's important that we understand that. Let's, let's look at... And verse, and it finished, I will turn my hand unto the little ones. And the idea here is he will protect the little ones. When we come to Revelation, he talks about 144,000 being protected. There are still Jews turning to Jesus Christ even to this day, and he's, he's still protecting those. But let's look at verse 8 just for a second here. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. 
Daniel tells us about the great tribulation. Revelation tells us about the great tribulation. The scriptures tell us that it will be the seven worst years that this earth has ever seen. We've seen some pretty tremendous things. Maybe not in my lifetime. I miss World War II and World War I. But I've seen some pretty tremendous things since then. And yet the Bible tells us that this will be the worst ever, and it will be the worst time ever. And if you study the book of Revelation, we're told that unless the days were shortened, no one would survive. Everyone would be annihilated. And yet we come here, and what do we read? And it says, and it shall come to pass, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. Two parts therein shall be cut off and die. Turn over to Isaiah 4, if you would, and let's look at that. I believe this prophecy in Isaiah 4 is addressing this very issue and this very end times. Be careful when you read the parables that you don't get mixed up. Because when judgment comes, the one taken on the field that's taken away is taken away in judgment. It's not speaking of the rapture there. It's speaking of this judgment. Let's start with verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Think about this for a moment. He doesn't want you to miss it. He doesn't want you to misunderstand it. He says, first, that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem. And then just to make sure you understand, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. God tends to make his points, sort of like I do, and then make his points again. And then just make sure you got it. He reminds us once again what the point is. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. When the two-thirds are taken away, it's taken away in judgment. The next verse, we're going to see what he's talking about when he talks about the burning. But he's going to take them away in judgment Verse 5, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for upon all the glory shall be a defense. He will be the tabernacle in which his people dwell under and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge for a covert, covert from the storm and from rain. Do not believe anyone who would tell you that God is done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. God's going to judge them. And two-thirds of them are going to die. But when he's done with them, he will have a holy remnant that will serve him. Now let's look at a couple of verses earlier in this, in this book of Zechariah. Let's go to the 12th chapter. And let's look at verse 10. Verse 
And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And they shall look upon me in whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So after the two-thirds are removed, there's going to be one-third. That one-third will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And they will mourn in bitterness over the way they have treated their Messiah and the way they've sinned against him. And there will be cleansing, cleansing for those that remain. If you read the next verses, it will tell you as you finish that chapter that it's a royal house. It's the house of priests, but it's all the individuals too. No one's left out. That's left. And then you get to verse 12, and it says in that, in, in verse 13, in the first verse, in that day there will be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And there will be a fountain. It's, I don't believe it's a fountain of blood. I believe it's a fountain of grace and supplication that we read about in verse 10. They've been washed in the blood, and now they're going to be cleansed from their past. Now let's go to the ninth verse here of chapter 13 and look at this. And I will bring the third part through the fire. So two-thirds are going to be taken away and there'll be a third part and there'll be a fire. And what was the fire of? The fire was a fire of judgment. And so that seven years of tribulation will be a fire of judgment on the people of Israel. But a third of them will survive. And notice what it will say. It says, and will try them as gold and will refine them as silver is refined. And will try them as gold is tried. I've never refined metals. I've seen videos of people refining metals. And now we live in a day and age where with YouTube, you can go and watch someone refining gold or refining silver. And they get it extremely hot, and the dross all comes to the top, and they skim it off and skim it off and skim it off until they get something that's pure. And that's the idea here, is that there's going to be a refining fire of judgment till those that are left are pure. And Isaiah confirms that, and Isaiah says, because of the fire of judgment, that everyone that's left, everyone living will be pure and holy in Jerusalem. And the Lord will come back to reign over his people, and they will recognize him who they are, who he is, and they will worship him, and they will honor him. Because notice what it, what it says, and they, shall, and they shall call on my name. And they shall call on my name. And they will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And it says, and I, will, and, and I will hear them. They've been calling on his name, but he has not responded because they rejected their Messiah. But there's coming a day when he will respond to their call. And I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. Now, we have a picture of that in the New Testament. A picture of the way the remnant will recognize Jesus Christ. Should I call on Ricky and ask him if he knows what that picture is? 
you all know the story, and you probably haven't applied it to this type. But here's the story. As you know, when the Lord was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples. But lo and behold, there was one that was not there. And that one was Thomas. And what happened the next time he came, Thomas was there. And what was Thomas' response and reaction? Because the Lord said, here I am, put your hands. Because he had said, unless I can feel and touch, I won't believe it. And so the Lord says, put, thrust your hands into my hands. Thrust your fist into my side. And what was Thomas's reaction? Because he didn't need to touch. Because he saw. He saw. And he said, my Lord and my God. Well, here we see Thomas as a type of what's going to actually take place. They've doubted, they've doubted, but there's coming a time where he will appear to Israel and they will recognize him for who he is. They will recognize him for who he is. Malachi talks about that also. He says in Malachi 3.3, and he shall set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The priests will be purified. The people will be purified. And those that are left will call upon the name of the Lord. And so just as the dross was removed, everything's going to be removed. And the only thing that's going to be left is purity. And they will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. When God's great... And for the nation has been reached and the remnant refined and ready, then the blessings of the new covenant between God and Israel will be enjoyed. Now, sometimes we go through trials and we go through periods and they're not comfortable and they're often not pleasant and they're usually not enjoyable to say the least. And yet God has a purpose in refining us. Because the truth is, in order for us to re enjoy God's blessings, there are some things that must be removed from our lives. And he does it. Turn over to Romans 5, if you would. Let's just look at that for a second in conjunction with this refining fire. I'll readily admit to you that I cannot say what Paul says here. And Paul says this in Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. I wish I could say I glory in tribulation also. There are times I do believe that the tribulation is working 
God's purpose in my life. I can't tell you that it's always with joy or glory that I understand that. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And now that I'm older, I see where that's true. As many of you know, we made regular trips down to Mexicali when Allison was in the hospital. And the first night we went was Martin Luther King's birthday, since that was the day of the incident. And crossing back over that night, because it was a three-day weekend, was grueling, to say the least. It was about 10 or 10.30 when we hit the border, and it was about 1.30. It was almost three hours. It was about 1.30 a.m. when we finally got through the border. And every week, it was about two hours plus that we went down twice a week to see them and cross. And I will tell you that I learned more patience during those eight weeks of going down there twice a week than I probably, and I'm a, I, I hopefully, I'm a more patient in traffic, I'm more patient waiting in lines, and I'm more patient crossing the border because of those eight weeks. Because you know what? There was nothing I could do about it, so I either learned patience or I would drive myself nuts. But it's interesting what God will use to teach us things. But tribulation should teach us patience. And I can say, it only took 60 plus years for me to learn some, but um, it does do that. And patience experience and experience hope. Sometimes we jokingly say this and we say, well, what's the best teacher? And we say, well, failure. As you usually learn best from failure. Success, you don't always learn the best from. But failure, hopefully, you learn the best from. But in this case, experience hope. Why would our failure or why would going through this tribulation give us hope? Because the hope isn't based upon ourselves and our abilities. As we go through troubles and, tr troubles and tribulations, we go through this refining fire, the thing that we need to see and understand and learn is that we have no control over those things, but we know, we know the one that does. And we trust that he's in charge. And we know that the one who did not spare his own son will he not freely give us all things. So when we're in an understandably difficult situation, our hope should be increased because our faith should go stronger and our trust should go stronger in the one who spared not his own son. And then he says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And hopefully as we go through this refining fire, which will be... As difficult as your life circumstances have been, and some of you have had very difficult life circumstances, none of them compare to those who will go through the tribulation. The little, Paul says, the light affliction that we have for a moment compared to the eternal weight of glory if we look at that light affliction in the light of glory, if we look at that light affliction in the light of the one who spared not his own son and freely gives us all things, 
should result in us, like these Jews will in the final day, turn to God and say, the Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. If I can remember in the midst of the most difficult times of my life, if I can remember that, the Lord is my God, I will have hope and the love of God shed abroad in my life. These things are not particularly written just for us. These things are written because I believe there will be Jews going to the tribulation who will read the scriptures and gain great comfort from them, knowing that the God who promised will fulfill his word because he's done it every single time. Every single time he's done what he said he's going to do, he's done it. And I have faith and trust that he will be 100% on the scorecard when all is said and done. And I can say the Lord is my God.